0: Well, we continue our quest through the book of Esther. If you're uh, joining us for the first time, uh, this today begins part eight of our journey through the book of Esther, part eight. And uh, all these sermons are online, um, iTunes podcast, SoundCloud. You can find them online um, if you want to pick up with the rest of the story. Uh, Last week, we concluded chapter seven the villain the tyrant haman all his plotting all his scheming all his deceiving all his thinking well i'm never going to get caught no one's ever going to discover this find out this comes to light before the king and the king's wrath the king's justice is poured out haman is executed on the very gallows that he had built in effort to hang mordecai Esther's older cousin it ultimately would be his undoing and so at the end of chapter 7 it really kind of feels like that's where the end of the story should be in fact i was riding in the car with with one of the guys here from the church and he was like what we're going to preach next week it was like esther he's like i thought esther's over i'm like no esther's not over It kind of, it feels like just in the rhythm of the flow of the story, it should be at that point. But the fact is, is there is more at stake than just Mordecai and Esther's life because the edict that Haman had convinced the king back in chapter three to issue, that's still in play. Like that, that day, that purge is coming unless something is done about it. The, the fate of the people of God throughout the Persian Empire hang in the balance. Well, that's where we pick up in chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus, and this is the same guy, you probably know him better by his Greek name, Xerxes. 300, Battle of Thermopylae, same guy. Um, on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king esther had told what he was to her it appears here the indication from verse 1 is that in the persian empire the goods and property of condemned criminals were confiscated by the king and at this point in verse 1 esther reveals her identity who mordecai is and her relationship to him which ultimately helps improve mordecai's standing before the king and the king took off his signet ring Which he had taken from haman and gave it to mordecai and esther set mordecai over the house of haman mordecai essentially replaces haman at this point in the story he is the new number two there right he's the the vp of operations for the whole persian empire but esther is still very much concerned i mean in in one sense it's, it's 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 a happy day but There's still that anxiety hanging over her head about everybody else. Like, what about them? Then Esther spoke again to the king, verse 3. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. So still enforce haman's original edict by the king that had been sent throughout the 127 provinces which called upon the destruction of the jewish people on the 13th day of the 12th month and what i really want to pause and just hover over here for a moment in verse 3 is esther's actions because i think a lot of times we get so comfortable and as long as things are going well like with me right? And then maybe like with me and Diana or me, Diana, maybe just immediate family, okay, we're good, right? It'd be really easy or comfortable to be like, well, me and me and Mordecai, we're, we're secure, so I... easy maybe not to care so much. That that's not Esther. Oh, don't miss this, right? Esther doesn't stop just because she and her older cousin Mordecai who helped raise her because they've now been delivered. Like, she's concerned about her people, the whole community throughout the empire, not just herself, not just her friend group, not just the cool kids. She is a living illustration of Galatians 6.10. Galatians 6.10, Paul says, so then as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith, right? As Christians, we want to do good to everyone, right? But then it's especially those who are of the household of faith. Esther's doing this, right? Great illustration to Galatians 6.10, great illustration to Philippians 2.4, where Paul says, let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's easy to look just to your own interest. Those selfish tendencies. What about the people to your left and right? I don't know them. People in front of you or behind you, seated right now. I don't, I don't really talk to them. <coughs> Esther doesn't know these people. She doesn't know these people either. doesn't stop her. So I think Esther's doing quite well right now. Great illustration. And I think some of us, we do this really, really well. And maybe some of us, we we struggle doing this, right? Because in our culture, everything's just about you. So you've got your life, you've got your job, you've got your family, you've got your kids, you've got your credits, you've got your whatever, right? And it's just no time for anybody else. And that's our... That's usually our justification for why we can't maybe be like Esther in this way, and then uh, sometimes we come up with other reasons like, "Well, I just don't have any opportunities." Someone says, "Joe, what would you say if I, I just said I, I want to be like Esther in this way?" why well, she is a great illustration to these points, right? Galatians six ten, Philippians two four. I just don't have any opportunities you ever come to a small group before You're like, Man, this guy talks about a small group all the time because they they are intentionally designed to create these type of servant opportunities not just to come and kick it if you've been to small group you know what I'm talking about right They're drawn up and designed in such a way to create intentional opportunities to care for others within the local church, right? Not just your friends, not just your buddies from the dorm or work, but even people that you might not even ordinarily socialize with because that is exactly what she's doing. She doesn't know these people. I don't feel that way then pray to God. God, give me a love for your people. Even your people, like, the, I don't even know. Maybe even people in this room right now. The, I don't even know. I just God, I want to have such a love overflowing in my heart toward them. That's a good prayer to pray if, if you struggle with that. So she's before the king. And the king, verse 4, he held out his, his golden scepter, to Esther. And Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews. Who are in all the provinces of the king for how can i bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people or how can i bear to see the destruction of my kindred there's the scene right she's before the king and she is very upset very emotional understandably so the king extends his golden scepter this has happened before okay some people are like this happens twice it happens twice in the story Most of us are familiar with the first instance, right? And so when we come to the second one where he extends his golden scepter, it's like, well, is she risking her life again? And I don't think contextually that fits well, or we should understand it in such a way, but rather this time the the golden scepter is not extended so much to save Esther's life, but rather to show that she is more than welcome in the king's presence. So what we have here, I think is a continuation of the scene that we've already gone over in verses one and two. It's all one scene taking place. So the king extending his scepter is him simply encouraging her to rise, and to speak and she does just that she, uh, she's got an idea and she's not an idiot at all, I think she understands to some degree Persian law cannot be overturned and so she comes to the king with a solution because reversing that original edict in chapter 3 which called for the purge, the annihilation of the Jewish people, that's a delicate matter because it's already been signed by the king and you'll notice what she says in verse 5 specifically she doesn't use the word law rather here in in the esv it uses the word order so it's a different word in the original language being used because this is a little bit of a delicate matter and so she's come and she's just made her case here's the response from king ahasuerus Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. We we know that already. We just read that last week, chapter 7. But what the narrator seems to intentionally be doing, and we don't know who the author is, though some have suspected it might be Mordecai who's writing this, but we don't know. But here in verse 7, the author's making clear in the statement that the king makes that individuals like this loser Haman, individuals who attack the people of God will ultimately fail. And I say ultimately. I think it's a, a really important point the narrator Wants us to draw from this. Because we already know this. We know Haman's dead. And more than that. The king here. In saying this. Reminds Esther and Mordecai. Listen guys. I hear you Esther. Essentially is what he's saying. Like I'm I'm on your side sweetie. That's what he's saying here. Showing that he's already favorably. Disposed toward. the, The Jewish people. Which is good. So. He's going to offer them a blank check. Verse 8. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king. A blank check. You write it, okay? I'll sign off on it. And seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. We, we know this Persian law. Got it. Verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan. On the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews. To the satraps, these were people in the government, different officials, and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India, the Ethiopia, 127 provinces. It's a vast empire. Uh, This is the largest empire the world has ever known. So uh, a lot of logistics has to go into this new edict that's going to be written. To each province in his own script and to each people in its own language and also to the jews in their script in their language verse 10 and he wrote in the name of king hashuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring and then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service bred from the royal stud this would have been the kentucky derby winner probably of their day the royal stud verse 11 saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy to kill and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them children and women included and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Crucial to this point here in the story is the fact that the Jewish people should be allowed to act in self-defense. I'm reading this and it was making me think of I think the movies are called The Purge. One day during the year all criminal activity it's going to be legalized right like that's that's what's happening here okay except now that we've balanced the scales a little right because now they actually have the opportunity to defend themselves which interestingly continues to be a A political point, a point of debate today, whether or not this Jewish state of Israel should be able, should be entitled to defend themselves. And of course, the day appointed here is the same day of Haman's edict that had been set for the plundering of the Jews back in chapter 313. And the obvious reason is so that they could defend themselves on that specific day. And I'm sure some people will say, oh, well, they don't need to defend themselves, right? Nobody needs to have weapons of war no one needs to be able to ha- they don't need that right they'll be fine right i'm sure somebody there is probably having this thought and uh and you only have to go back to the second world war to recall what happened when people voiced such ideas right they'll be fine uh, this is this that hitler guy this is gonna blow over he's not that bad of a guy this this will be over just like that right So now the, uh, the playing field has been leveled for the people of God. At least now they've got like a, a chance to defend themselves. A copy, verse 13, was written. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies, and so the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king, in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown. A robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. These would have been non-Jewish people who were there shouting and rejoicing. Which, ironically, totally opposite reaction. The reaction of the people of Susa in chapter eight fifteen is the total opposite reaction of the people of Susa in chapter three fifteen. In chapter three fifteen, the people of Susa, the citadel, they find out about. The law that Haman convinced the king to sign off on, allocating a, a purge day for the Jewish people, and they're they're upset. Like even the people that aren't Jewish, because the thinking is, is that if this could happen to one people, this could happen to another people. And and now here in chapter eight fifteen, totally different set of emotions involved. Mordecai comes out clearly, like I mean. He has the king's favor he's wearing the royal crown the royal robes and the author here i think in in stating this in the reaction of the people of susa does so to show that the welfare of the people of god the welfare of the jews ultimately meant the good of the whole society it's a good thing right just as in 3.15, when we find out that they're about to be eradicated, that's a bad thing, and that's scary and terrifying. And here it's a good thing when he comes out. It further illustrates what Proverbs 29, 2 says. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. Shocker. People are happy when the righteous increase, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. And the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor very different reaction than they had back in chapter 4 when they first found out about this decree in chapter 4 their their emotions their reaction was mourning and fasting and weeping and wailing and I'm sure some of them are thinking this is it. This is This is how it's gonna end. Never really think about that. How much longer we have, right? This this is maybe today's it. And here their reaction is is, is joyous and, and celebratory, right? Because they have been delivered. They've been saved. They've been been rescued so we come to the final verse and in every province and in every city wherever the king's command and his edict reached there was gladness and joy among the Jews a feast and a holiday and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them this raises the question here at the the end of chapter 8, why are people declaring themselves Jews? Kind of interesting, right? Why would they do that? Are they actually truly converting to Judaism or embracing Yahweh as the only God within their polytheistic system? Like, what's actually happening here? Well, the narrator says, why is this happening? It's for fear of them, but how so? Because the new edict entitles them to self-defensive measures not offensive measures so why would people be declaring themselves Jews because they're afraid like what are they afraid of one commentator keel says one possibility is that some of these people are genuinely coming over right crossing from darkness into light to embrace, to love, to pledge their allegiance to the only God, the living God. No doubt, very influential maybe in this was what they've what they've witnessed. What we've witnessed. I mean, this is my eighth sermon I've preached here, but what what have we witnessed? We've, we've witnessed this evil and influential man, Haman, rise to power using the system to pass unjust laws that ultimately allow for the extermination and the purge of thousands of people legally. And they know, as well as you know, right? Once the law has been issued, you can't overturn it, right? So it probably seems like this is a slam dunk. It's over. It's done. When this was first issued... I'm sure they thought there was no way there's any other outcome than all these people are going to be annihilated. What have they witnessed? It's no wonder in this story when Mordecai appears in verse 15 with the royal robes and the the crown that the people are overjoyed. I mean, literally the impossible has happened. And it further illustrates Proverbs 29. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. And they've had a lot of groaning to deal with up until this point. With evil Haman and the law that he passed. A lot of groaning. And uh, I'd say on, on the topic of groaning, and we see that evil taking place in this story that legally allows the murder of entire people groups in which countless thousands would be sacrificed. And these people have just witnessed this, which at many points isn't a whole lot different than what we've been witnessing for the last 47 years in this country. when the Supreme Court's decision to legislate in a 7-2 ruling, the legal execution and purging of now 61 million Americans. And I I say the Supreme Court's decision to legislate because if you take a civics class, you know that the House of Representatives, right? Like the Congress, they legislate, they make the laws. The Supreme Court, their job is to interpret the law. And so I intentionally use that word to legislate the legal execution purging of 61 million uh, americans and i i saw on social media this week right if you are in here and you're under the age of 47 years of age you have survived the abortion holocaust a holocaust that has taken the lives of one out of every three americans think about that you got three people right here you're dead right you guys live you die those numbers are based on the population growth 120 plus million people since the supreme court ruled on roe versus wade and 61 million americans have died so if you're in here you're listening online you're under the age of 47 years of age congratulations you have done what one third of your fellow americans never got the opportunity to do they didn't survive their concentration camps, their Holocaust. And you see, you think about what they've witnessed. And I'm watching a recap of two weeks ago, the, the Democratic presidential debates in Des Moines, and just utterly shocked that None of those candidates wanted any restrictions whatsoever on abortion. All of them in favor of overturning the Hyde Amendment, which was passed the year after the Supreme Court's ruling in 1973, which said we're not going to allow any federal money to be used in the spending uh, of abortion. All of them want nothing to do with overturning the Hyde Amendment. Every single major candidate running for president for the nomination of the Democratic Party say, no, we don't want any restrictions on abortion, late term abortion. That's okay. Up until the point of birth, that's fine. Because after all, only 1% of all abortions are late term. I didn't know that only 1%, right? Until you understand that 1% of all late term abortions, that's 12,000 people. That's more than all the gun homicides combined in this country. It's no wonder that Solomon says, um, when the wicked rule the people, groan. What have they witnessed? Well, we've witnessed a true holocaust in this country. They have witnessed a lot of evil as well. And evil and influential man rise to power using the system to pass unjust laws that allow for the extermination of thousands of people legally and then what what else have they witnessed they've no doubt witnessed these people and their trust in god when facing a decree that they know the legal system cannot be overturned or changed. And no doubt in seeing maybe their faith, it has led some of them, yes, as verse 17 says, to declare themselves Jews. I think that's entirely what is happening here is these people, they're seeing that there's a difference. There's a difference in these people, and there's a difference in their God, because their God comes through, and their God delivers, and their God answers prayers, and they're like, wow, that's that's kind of terrifying, right? I and mean, Solomon says, it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. And I'm wondering, maybe that's some of the fear that the author is speaking of. But I think... It also could be making too little of this text for us to simply suggest that this is a matter of how the people of God conducted themselves lest we come away thinking unbiblically of what might have actually been taking place here that maybe this all was just observational evangelism right yeah they're they're just watching and the Jewish people are really nice and and maybe they do really kind things and and I, and I want to address that because we get in this mindset maybe where it's, oh, well, maybe what has happening here is they're just watching their lives, right? That's how, that's how it's taking place. Maybe that's what's leading them to fear God and come to know God and embrace God. So they come to this mindset of to preach the gospel and, if necessary, use words. And I'm just going to live out my faith, and that's just how I'm going to evangelize to non-Christians. And I'm not suggesting... how we conduct ourselves in view of non-christians is not important because it's it's really really important but underneath the pages of this story would have no doubt been conversations taking place in which they got to learn about the living god let me be clear conversations are happening in order for verse 17 to take place for people to embrace god for paul himself says in romans chapter 10 verse 13 everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved that's great news but how then will they call on him and who they've not believed that's true that's a problem and how are they to believe in him and who they've they've never heard about him And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news so faith it comes from hearing you got to hear about jesus it's great if you want to just live your life for jesus and people will see how great a person you are and that you're different right and you take your neighbors a plate of brownies and they're like wow they're so nice i want to become a christian right listen that's a great thing to do but a plate of brownies it doesn't save anybody like you got to open your mouth you got to use the words you got to tell them about jesus that's the only way, right? There are conversations happening. Narrators say it. it's got to be from what we know from Romans chapter 10. It's the only way that these people are actually, if they are truly and genuinely coming to embrace Yahweh. Conversations are happening. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Amen. But can they see us in that way? Are we like the Jewish people in Esther's day? You know, we know several centuries later when Paul was preaching the gospel throughout the Hellenistic, the Greek speaking world, many of the converts to Christ were God fearing Greeks. Acts 17, four tells us as much. They had become disillusioned with pagan religions and were attracted by the Jews faith in one God and their high ethical principles. Listen, it's great if you want to live out your Christian faith, and you should live out your Christian faith, but you've got to do more than just live it out. You've got to open your mouth and actually articulate the gospel. You've got to do that. You have to. And uh, I know that there's a, some people, they struggle with this. I remember... My good buddy josh dan Cordo. he's a pastor in pittsburgh now and i remember coming to his room when i'd get home from school home from school i was living over on the quads anybody from the quads in here home of the gods we weren't polytheistic we just thought it sounded funny so i'd come home and i would practice sharing the gospel with josh that's what i would do i'd come in his room and he'd be like i'd be like how did i do he'd Be like well you forgot about the resurrection kind of important right <laughs> But that's what i would do i would practice and i say that because it helped me so much so that when i had real life situations right whether it was in lynchburg or whether i was away with the army i was prepared to give a reason for the hope that i had in christ right there are conversations taking place in verse 17. narrator doesn't tell us about it. it has to happen are you ready to have those conversations got to be ready to have those conversations, folks. Um, and I used to use it as a, a litmus test when I was a young single guy. Um, you guys can definitely want to take notes now. Um, when I was a young single guy, I remember if there was a girl that, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to go spit my game with her or something. Um, I'd be like, I just casually bring up, so just out of curiosity, if like, if I wasn't a Christian, what would you say to me? And then I remember one girl, she was like, uh, I was like, check, please, let's go. (laughs) That is a true story. No, but, um, I realized back when I was younger, and I was in college, just how important this is—like that we know the gospel. Because if you don't know it, if you're not ready to go, like when you're in that moment, right? When God is just working like like crazy, like in your city and in your country, and it's being turned upside down, and you're having those opportunities, like what are you going to say? You're like, ah, ah, it's like, ah, oh, but I just, I don't know. I, what do I do if I am that person? How do I practice? I don't have a Josh Tan Cordo. Um and see this is the beauty of the local church because my job isn't just simply to stand up here week after week and preach a sermon all right so tell people like my my phone number's not in the bulletin to take up space if you were like i want to learn how to practice sharing the gospel then like come talk to me after the service or shoot me a text and i'll set up a time and you can come over and we'll set up a time we'll practice we'll we'll do that i think it's so important i used to teach high school evangelism two or three days a week i would be sitting in the class i'd be like all right. He's not not a Christian, you are, go. Just go. And that's what we would do, right? we just practice. And I'd be like, all right, again. All right, this, you forgot the resurrection. Again, right? Again. Um, We need to know that. I think a lot of Christians, like we know this, but like, man, we're just, it's scary, right? We get out there among the world, throughout the 127 provinces of of the largest empire ever known. It's like, whoa, what do we do now? No, we need to be ready to tell people about jesus that god sent his only son to come born of the virgin mary he lived a perfect life he died a sacrificial death he was buried rose from the grave conquering sin conquering death proving that he was who he said he was and that salvation is a free gift of god and that we are saved by faith alone through grace alone it's a, it's a beautiful message it's, it's an inclusive message that's that's Kind of a hot word today right mm-hmm. inclusive right so people say well, oh you're a pastor yeah you, you, what kind of pastor are you right because you know and I'm like oh well, I'm a very inclusive pastor right oh <laughs> huh, okay I, I like the sound of that <laughs> I tell people all the time is the gospel inclusive absolutely so long as you come to Jesus on Jesus's terms okay you come to Jesus on Jesus's terms yes it's inclusive if anyone would but come absolutely but the problem is the world they, they want to essentially create their own version of jesus that tolerates all the things that jesus says are wrong and they they create an idol out of jesus they create an idol out of god oh, yeah the gospel is if you just come if you bow the knee to king jesus if you turn from your sins if you trust him absolutely and so here at the end of chapter 8 this is what i see i see a young woman very courageous young woman who cares so much about other people even people that aren't in her friend group people that she doesn't even know she has such a love for them it's beautiful and what do i see i see her coming i see her lobbying the king within the parameters of the law of the land trying to move things around and i think A lot of american christians we we tend to be really good at this okay i had the march for life last week in the nation's capital the district of columbia a lot of christians do this part really good they're like man i'm like esther man i'm nailing that part right she went and she lobbied the king that's it's great but then sometimes i think as american christians we we put too much emphasis on the political part and sometimes it turns into an idol. And sometimes we think that maybe there's one political party that somehow is all of our hope and, and trust lays in and the fact is, is like there's one savior and his name's Jesus. Okay? Just keep that in mind because I think a lot of us maybe struggle. I used to struggle with that, right? Um, do you recall In this story, Esther's actions, like, yeah, she went and lobbied the king, right? She's politically active, right? That's good. Jeremiah says, Seek the welfare of the country you live in. That's good. She's doing that. I do that. Okay, but think about what happened first. When the news broke about this purge, about this law, about this edict, what was the first thing she did? And if you remember back at the end of chapter four, she was on her knees praying and fasting and no not lone ranger esther she told mordecai to get everybody like you know and we're gonna pray and we're gonna fast and we're gonna ask god to do the impossible to move because right now the fact is unless god moves we're all gonna die and i find that oftentimes that's the part i think as american christians we struggle with a little bit more when it comes to these type of situations we got the man. I vote in every single election. All right, that's it's good. You're seeking the welfare of the city you live in. Jeremiah would be proud. But what's your prayer life like? There's a reason every single Sunday when we gather here, we corporately pray for our leaders. Not just because uh, Joe's interested in current events. There's a reason, right? I'd cite First uh, Timothy. Chapter two, one and two as well, as my justification. That's important. Are you are you like her in that regard? How is your prayer life? Whereas my, my wife lovingly asked me the other day, like, I'm just curious, you're preaching this sermon. When, when was the last time that you were on your knees and fasting? for the things that you're praying for. You know, at the end of the story, my, my hope is this, that we may not forget what was the first thing she did. Going back to chapter 4, first thing she did is she invoked Yahweh. Like, right? God's name is never mentioned throughout the story. But in her call for the people to fast, it would have been understood that it would have been accompanied by prayer. To who? To the only God, the living God. May he be our strength, our confidence, our rock, and our reliance at the onset and at the end. Forever and always. We love you, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would make us like Esther in this regard, that we would look and care about other people well, that we would do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith, that you would just give us an increase, Lord, our love, Lord. You'd increase our love for the people that maybe we don't even know who they are and they're sitting in front of us right now or they're sitting behind us right now, that you'd increase our love for your bride, And Lord, while we try and we seek the welfare of the city we live in, of the country we live in, Lord, we know at the end of the day that unless you move, unless you act, all of our action is in vain. It is. We need you, Lord. When we think about the evil in in our own day and age, we think of of the abortion, holocaust, the the mass execution and genocide in our own country. And and Lord, we pray that you would act. That you would do what seems best to you. Help us, Jesus. We need you, Lord. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.